Hello, everybody. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Got a little extra room in here tonight. We got um, at Snowbird, there's about 350 students that'll be here until tomorrow morning. They've been with us all weekend. So a lot of our folks are out serving them right now, running rec, and uh, have a service tonight with them around 7.30, and John Rouleau is going to preach to them, and, uh, which I, think, I don't know if we mentioned in here yet, you know, the Rouleau's welcomed Judah home, so the, yeah, Jenna finally had that baby, and uh, got him home and doing really well, so uh, on behalf of them, thank you for all those prayers. So yeah, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, let me go ahead and read our passage, it's just, just three verses, um, last time I preached for almost an hour, and so this time I got just three verses, so start in verse 14, <laughs> smart, start in verse 14, he says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this passage stands in a really awesome place in the letter, in the epistle, or in the sermon, where we're going back to, it really finishes up the conversation that was started in the beginning of chapter 3 when he says, man, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession, right, so he was honing in on that word confession again, and, and then he, he goes into that warning, remember he compares Jesus and Moses so that we would see the comparison of the exodus that Moses led and the people that he led through the wilderness towards the promised land, towards the promised rest, that we would see ourselves as being brought out of slavery of sin by Jesus and we're living in this wilderness of this world going towards an eternal rest, our promise of uh, an eternal rest that we typically just refer to as heaven. And so that we'd see that in the middle of it, he gave us that really, uh, man, that strong warning. That was a heavy passage that we walked through. And it's even just mentally and emotionally and spiritually heavy thinking about, okay, man, we can't do what they did. They fell away because they didn't trust God's word. They didn't believe God. They, they rejected his provision and his promise. And so that generation dies in the wilderness. They don't get to enter the promised land. And he's saying, so like examine yourself, make sure that you don't fall away. Make sure you're not deceived by sin so that your heart would become hard and that you'd fall away from the living God. He says, man, we, we belong to Jesus if we hold fast, if we hold firm, our hold firm our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And so tonight he says something similar. It's the third time in this conversation where he said, hold fast. And there's more to come in the letter. Like, he wants us to take serious our call to persevere faithfully to the end of our lives. That we're to hold fast. And tonight he says, hold fast to your confession. And he's telling us to hold fast because in light of the sympathetic heart and faithfulness of Jesus. Did you see that? 
So because, man, hold firm, hold fast. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't be deceived by sin. Don't fall away. Don't, don't let off the gas in your pursuit of Christ. Why? Because Jesus is sympathetic. He sympathizes with our weakness. So uh, it made me think of a kind of old illustration. It's old, but it's good. Um, where, and you're probably familiar with this. I really should have Moose come up and explain it because she knows way more about this than I do. I, I, I was like, hey, have you ever heard of this? And I went into it, and then she went to a depth where I just started nodding my head. I was like, three minutes in, I was like, mm-hmm, that's what I was talking about. <laughs> but it's called a sympathetic resonance. Hmm? And what it, what it is, it's this, this principle, this truth, that if you have, say, like, if I had, uh, well, does anybody have any tuning forks on them? No? Okay, so pretend, pretend I had two tuning forks, and they, they both, they were in the same frequency, right? And I had them here, and if I just hit one of them, the other one would sympathetically resonate the same tune, right? That as whatever sciencey stuff is happening, as the air is compressed, and the sound is traveling through time and space, and it meets that tuning fork like it'll resonate with the same sound this happens uh, with piano strings right you've probably heard it where if you have two pianos in the same room and if one doesn't have the damper on if you know what a damper is and you hit you strike that chord like the other piano will resonate it'll it'll respond it'll make the same sound it's this cool thing and that's where moose went into like well and even within the same chord and if you hold this key down and that's when i was like yeah and and zach was like well if we had the if we had a real piano on stage you could you could just demonstrate it and i thought you'd have to put stickers <laughs> on the key and somebody would actually have to put their hand over mine and press my fingers down. And then, yes, then I could demonstrate it. But it's this cool thing, and it, this principle, and I think, man, that, that's what he's saying, because just the, that word, to be sympathetic, it means, man, to feel what somebody else is feeling. And so time out. This is, this is the Son of God. This is the God who spoke the universe into existence, sustains it right now by the power of his word. Remember that? Everything was made by him and for him, and he became one of us. Remember chapter two? In order for Jesus to become the perfect savior, he had to really become like us. It says that he became like his brothers in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for our sins. And it's saying that he is sympathetic. What does that mean? It means that he resonates with all that it means for us to be human and all of our frailty and all of our shortcomings and all of our limitations and all of our weaknesses even in all our temptations resonates in his soul he feels it he feels our weaknesses he knows our pain he knows our suffering in fact he entered into it at the deepest possible levels. It's this cool picture where what we can have confidence in, what we can hold firmly to, is that, man, Jesus loves us. He identifies with us. And our weaknesses, when you're at the moment where you feel like you're going to let go, when you feel like, man, I've given in to sin so many times, how can I possibly call myself a Christian? 
And that weakness still resonates with Jesus. But not from a position of like, oh, I know exactly what you're going through and I wish it was different. No, no, no. It resonates with him from a position of strength because he never gave in. Because not only is he sympathetic, but he's faithful. And he never yielded. C.S. Lewis said this. So we, Spencer, a couple weeks ago, if you remember, uh, at the end of chapter two, it says something similar and he, he references and it talked about how Jesus never gave into temptation and he used the illustration of the guy crossing the river and Brody used to use a, a really good illustration of a, a weightlifter competition because that's what competitors do and, and that like, okay, who really knows the full weight uh, the person who gets that weight halfway up and then fails or the person who gets it all the way over their head and locks out. And I thought, those are really good illustrations. Maybe I should come up with my own. And then I thought, no, I'm just going to read what C.S. Lewis said. And he said this. We all given, and I think it'll be on the screen behind me. He said this. I, I don't remember if this is from uh, Mirror Christianity. I know it's not from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but still good. He said, we all give in to sin before it reaches its full force. But Jesus, in never giving in, experienced the full force of every temptation. If temptation is like something that builds and grows as it goes and gets harder and harder and harder, then as soon as you cave in, you give way before it reaches its consummation. Jesus never gave in, and therefore every temptation reached its consummation with Jesus, and he endured it to its fullest effort to bring him down, and never brought him down, because he endured it to the end and never gave in. And so it's not as though he had never tasted the temptations, even the temptations, listen to this, even the temptations of the guilt and sin that were poured on him on the cross, he has tasted guilt, though he never sinned. So, man, there is no place for saying, well, yeah, well, Jesus was perfect. He doesn't know what I'm going through. Or, or to view Jesus as so otherworldly that it's, he's disconnected from whatever trial or temptation or suffering that you're experiencing. He knows it better than you do. And he's sympathetic. He's going through it with you from a position of power to not only like come alongside of you and feel bad for you, but to come alongside of you and to do something about it. So what does he do about it? Let's look again. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. So I said this passage stands at a cool place because it's referring back to and it's gonna give us the, the ultimate answer to the, the warning that he get, gave us in chapter three but it also is turning the letter to really what will become the whole heart of the letter of Hebrews, which is the high priesthood and the, and the priestly work of Jesus and all that it accomplishes for us. And so he's coming back to that part of the conversation. He's ending one and really opening up another one. And he says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And it's just that Jesus is greater than, we've seen this a lot, right? He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than all the kings that have come before. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. And here what we're beginning to see is he's greater than all the priesthood that existed in Israel. He's greater. 
He's far superior. He's better than because of who he is and what he's able to accomplish. And it says he passed through the heavens. And so it's a cool image. And I, every time I, I read it, I, I picture a I picture somebody flying through space, right? Like Jesus passing through the heavens. And some people take it to mean that, that it's talking about how he, well, when he ascended, he went through the atmosphere and then through space and then outside of space and time. And, but I don't think the writer really has in view here the ascension. Adam, can you bring up that, those images? Because I think if we, well, if we understand for Israel and their priesthood and how it was set up will we'll get a better feel for what he's saying about, okay, what does it mean that Jesus passed through the heavens as our great high priest? So for the Israelites, when they were first given what's called the tabernacle, is it behind me? Okay, I couldn't tell if you were staring at my forehead. Yeah, okay. Uh, when they were first given the tabernacle, God shows Moses, he takes him up on the mountain, and it says that he gives him the, the pattern for the tabernacle that would one day become the temple, okay? And the pattern is, what he's giving Moses is something real in God's presence in the heavenly places. And that's mysterious to us because all you and I have ever experienced is the material universe, right? So we don't, we can't get that, but he shows Moses something that's real in his presence, and then this is the pattern of it. This, this is the shadow of this eternal heavenly reality where God dwells, and so he constructs the tabernacle, and you'll see there in the front, there's this first set of curtains where you would pass into, into, the, into the outer court, and you'll see there, uh, can you see that it's got this one big altar, the bronze altar, and that's where kind of the, the day in and day out sacrifices would take place, where they would slaughter lambs and goats and bulls, and they would sprinkle blood on it for individual sins, for the sins of the people, just day in and day out. The priests are going in there, they're making sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of the people. And then there's a basin there in the middle, middle for ceremonial cleansing, and then you come to what is really like the temple, the central part, and there's another set of curtains. And if you were to pass through those curtains, that would take you into what was called the holy place. And that's where there was the golden lampstand, the table that held the, the bread of presence and the altar of incense. And so the priest would go in there every day and, and light the candles and put fresh bread out light the incense that would, you know, the picture is that that aroma would be in the presence of God. And then, then you come to the next set of curtains. And that set of curtains divided the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where they believed because God told them that he would dwell in here, that this is the tent of meeting, that he would meet with his people here and the holy of holies. But, but the priest, only one priest, right, the high priest, whoever served as high priest in a given year, he was allowed to enter into this curtain one day, on the day of atonement. And he would go in and he would first bring blood for his own sin and sprinkle it on what was called the mercy seat. So the Ark of the Covenant, it's a wooden box covered in gold, inside of which were the tablets of the law, 
some pieces of manna from their wanderings in the wilderness, and Aaron's staff that had budded, and that's all inside there. And then on top, what was called the mercy seat, it's just a thick slab of gold with these two formed angels on top, and they would take, and, and, and God's presence was to dwell in that spot, in that place, and they would sprinkle blood, right? So you've got the holiness of God, the law that we've broken, and then a place given where mercy can be extended, provided there was a sacrifice, provided there is a payment made to cover our sin. And so the, the high priest would go in there once a year. He'd pass, pass through the first set of curtains into the outer court, into the second set of curtains, into the holy place, and then finally on the Day of Atonement, through the third set of curtains into the most holy place, and he'd bring the blood of goats or lamb, a lamb or bull, and sprinkle it on the altar. And so when he says, we have a great high priest, we have a better high priest, because of what we've already confessed about who he is, this is God in the flesh, the one who made and sustains the universe. He took on humanity so he could sympathize with us in our weakness and then do something about it. And what he did about it was he didn't go into the tabernacle. When Jesus walked the earth, this no longer existed. There was the temple, and as far as we know, Jesus never entered into the temple. He never entered into the holy place. He didn't do anything with the bronze altar. He never went into the holy of holies on earth. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi. But what he says is, he passed through the heavens. What's he saying? Jesus went into the reality and the very presence of God. What this is just a shadow of, Jesus entered into the real thing. And he didn't take the blood of bulls and goats. L listen to this from Hebrews 9. I know we're going to get there in a few weeks, but we'll all forget by then, so let's just read it now. Chapter 9, oh, I forgot to send this to you. Chapter 9, start in verse 11. It's just a couple pages over, though, if you have your Bible. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So you remember in chapter one when he, when he says, when, and Jesus made purification for sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and we said that's a big deal because the priest never sat down. Their job was never done. Every day, all day, they're in the outer court making sacrifices for the people. And then once a year, a new high priest goes into the most holy place and offers on the Day of Atonement. And day, year in, year out, day in, day out, that's what they're doing. Their job is never done. They never sit down, and they definitely don't sit down in the Holy of Holies. And what you see is that the picture that he's painting is that Jesus passes through the heavens into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, 
offers his blood as this once for all perfect sacrifice and then sits down because the work is done. It's over. It's done. There's no repeating the sacrifice of Christ. It was made once and it was perfect and it was accepted by the Father and it cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness and it cleanses our conscience so that we can serve the living God. So that now we're free from the cycle of sin, repent and repeat. We're now free to serve God with a pure heart because Jesus has made it pure. Jesus, the Son of God, he says, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so he's using this finished work of Jesus as the reason to why we hold firm, that we hold fast, that we don't let go, that we don't give in to this, the deceitfulness of sin and fall away. And this is the picture that I want us to see is that he's saying, okay, because Jesus was sympathetic and our weaknesses and shortcomings and our failure and our fault and even our temptations and our sin resonated with him ultimately and finally on the cross because Jesus was sympathetic with us, now that what he's calling us to is to consider Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to look to Jesus. Why? Because he sympathized with us, now we can resonate with his faithfulness. You see that? The more I look to Jesus, the more I listen to Jesus, it's his faithfulness that resonates in my life. It's not my strength holding on and holding firm. It's his. It's not my faithfulness that makes me a good Christian man. It's his faithfulness resonating in my life. Listen to this. As soon as I find it. Grace and mercy are two dynamic and essential components of God's steadfast love. God is promising to equip us with his grace and mercy at the perfect time and the perfect amount in order to give us the required strength to hold fast and not fall away. A great high priest is never late with his sustaining grace. It arrives precisely when he means it to. It's an awesome picture. He says, you're gonna receive grace and mercy in your time of need. It's this, that Jesus always knows he always knows exactly how much grace and mercy to give us. This is love on display. And so he's saying, now you come boldly, come confidently into his presence. 
well, well, what does this look like? What does it look like for us while we're in this wilderness wandering, while we're being tempted to sin, while sin's deceptive power is constantly working on us, when in our flesh we want to fall away, we want to go back to the pleasures of slavery in Egypt over against the promises that God's given us, what does it look like to enter boldly into the presence of God? What does that even mean? Well, it means that because Jesus made propitiation for our sins, and you remember that word means that he, what it means is that not only did he purify us, but propitiation means he satisfied God's wrath for our sins. So that God's wrath towards us because of our rebellion, because of our disobedience, has been satisfied. Jesus took care of that. Because Jesus entered into the most holy place, he has now given us full access into the presence of God. And so I, I tend to think of this like, okay, well, when I start praying, then I enter in. The reality is, if you're a believer, this is where we exist. <laughs> this is where we live our lives. Because Jesus entered in and made a way May we live our lives in the presence of God. Listen to what, this is from Mark 15, verses 33 through 39. Mark 15, 33 through 39. This is Jesus on the cross. It says this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it and said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The, the image that the writer wants us to get is, is fascinating, right? He, he doesn't even really bring up the cross, he talks about Jesus' high priestly work and the image is that as Jesus is on the cross, he is shedding his blood, he's pouring out his blood. The imagery is that he is bringing it into the holy of holies before the Father to put on the mercy seat. And Jesus breathes his last and as he enters in to the presence of the Father, the image is, yeah, the curtain gets torn top to bottom. Because what God is saying is there's now no separation if Jesus has purified you, if Jesus has made propitiation for your sins, there's now no separation between you and your God. There is no outer court. There is no holy place and most holy place. You have become the dwelling of God. And we, together as the church, are the dwelling place of God. We live in his presence. So what he's saying is that his grace and his mercy, agents of his perfect steadfast love are always available to us in just the right amount at just the right time. But we have responsibility here. 
right? You didn't, when you got saved, he didn't say, all right, Harry, you're gonna need about a million grams of grace and mercy. Check, all right, that's downloaded. Mike, you're gonna, oh, I already got you. Right, like, it's not how it works. What, when does he want us to come and receive it? Right now, today. Today, if you hear his voice. Today, if, it's, if, if today is your time of need. It's always, always to recognize that we live our lives in the presence of Yahweh and his grace and his mercy, his steadfast love are available to us so that we never let go, so that we never turn back, we never fall away, that his faithfulness is our faithfulness, that his strength is our strength, that his victory is our victory. We can't lose sight of that. So he says, come boldly. Come consistently, constantly is the, the force of the words that are being used here. Always live here. So yeah, I think practically, yeah, it looks like always being an attitude of prayer. That's having, going through Hebrews this time, I found myself, and then especially this passage this past week, I found myself like, and, and I, man, I, <laughs> I so want this to continue. I found myself waking up, and my first thought is, God, keep me faithful today. Like, I want to be faithful to the end of my life. I want to finish the race well. I want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. I want that. Uh, it starts with today. God, give me the grace and the mercy. Show me your steadfast love today so I hold firm. Give me, give me the wisdom and the grace that I need for the trials and the temptations that will be specific to this day. And he's faithful. And he's not just asking us to come in, he's, he's commanding us, come, come and receive this. It's ours in Christ Jesus because of his faithfulness. Because of his faithfulness, the throne of judgment has become the mercy seat. It's become his throne of grace. The more we identify with Jesus, the more we listen to Jesus, fix our thoughts on Jesus, look to Jesus, the more we confidently approach his throne of grace, the more we will sympathetically resonate with his faithfulness in our trials and temptations. So I encourage us. I mean, we, we've been encouraging as we've gone through this series. I mean, let, let's, take, let's take our time in the word to a deeper place, right? Not, not like secret level, just, just more time with Jesus, just a better, better understanding of who he is and what he's done for us. Let's do that. Let's do that with the word. Let, let's study this, this letter faithfully together. And then let's do that with prayer. And let's grow in, in, in our time with the Lord spent in prayer for one another, for ourselves, for our own faithfulness. And I encourage you, I, I know it's, it's so, so often we have conversations with each other and we'll admit that this is an area where we're weak which is fine, like, Jesus is sympathetic with that. But he's not, not to the point where he's okay with us staying there. And Jesus demonstrated what it looked like to depend on the Lord's grace and mercy for his strength. He prayed all the time. So I, I, mean, I encourage you, I'm, I, I want to grow in this. I want to be better at prayer, spend more time in prayer, be more mindful that my life is lived in the holy of holies before the presence of God. Uh, just, just practically one of the things that man, the Lord 
has had me doing for a few years now is just in the morning, I, th- I think I've told you before, I just I list, I start that time off, I, I listen to scripture, literally I put headphones on and listen to scripture, let, let somebody else read the Bible to me as I read along, and when I feel like my mind is awake and engaged, I'm halfway through the second cup of coffee, then I open up my prayer journal on my computer, and I just start talking to God. And for me, if I type it out, like that takes enough brain power and focus where it keeps my attention on what I'm actually saying to God instead of if I try to pray just silently in my mind, game over. I'll just keep repeating, dear Lord, heavenly Father, over and over and over and over again. And even like, I like to pray out loud a lot and walk around, but then there's only so many places and times you can do that. So now I just started typing it out. And it's been so good for me been so good in my relationship with the Lord and my time focusing, praying over my family, confessing sin, confessing who Jesus is and what he's done and asking him to continually today apply that to my life. Give me the wisdom that I need, the discernment I need to distinguish between good and evil, what's right and what's best and how do I serve you and don't let me miss opportunities to encourage and to equip other believers and witness to the lost and man, I encourage you, and begin to take this serious, set time apart and ask God for his grace and mercy that are already yours in Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You'll resonate with his faithfulness and it will be exactly enough for today. Let's pray. Lord, love you. God, thank you for your amazing grace, your incomparable mercy. God, your, your steadfast love. God, thank you for sympathizing with us in our weakness, and I pray that we, would, that we would resound in this world to one another, to the lost around us, that they would see your faithfulness at work in us, and that they would be drawn to you, and that they would receive your gospel. I pray that Red Oak would become a church that we begin to see more and more lost people come into our fellowship. They'd see Jesus and repent and believe. God, I pray that you would grow us, grow us in our love for you and our understanding of your word and our urgency and desperation and prayer. God, I pray right now that you would free us from distraction, that we would just worship you for who you are and what you've done. God, we confess that there's no one else like you. There's no one else like you. We love you and we need you. I pray that you would receive this worship. In Christ's name, amen.